Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data and massive compute power. But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need. Search HPE GreenLake. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you via the Secret Library Podcast Patreon. We have recently reconstructed all the levels and have all new rewards for those who choose to support the show via the Patreon. Based on everyone's enthusiastic support for the solo episode, as well as interest in getting more of a community going where we can share writing goals, get support, ask questions and have them answered, there are now new levels that you can check out at the Patreon. If you'd like to hear more about my writing process, have access to a forum where you can post your goals and hear from other writers like you, as well as Q&A sessions and periodic video chats at certain levels, you can check this all out at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode 140 of the Secret Library podcast. My guest this week is Jasper Ford. He is a British writer who lives in Wales and writes absurdist fiction. He's written many, many books, starting with the Thursday Next series, which was a favorite for me, starting with the very, very first book, um, Lost in Austin. And through his nursery crime series, he has written a book called Shades of Grey, and the latest book is a standalone called Early Riser. I was lucky enough to hear Jasper Ford speak at the Edinburgh Festival of Books this past August, or August of 2018, I should say. And two topics that really struck me were his candor and openness about an experience with writer's block, as well as the concept of the narrative dare. So when I was lucky enough to meet him afterwards and invite him on the show, I was very excited to have him come on and talk about both of these topics. I think that the concept of writer's block is one that people skirt around or feel a great deal of shame about or think of it as some sort of mysterious demon that descends and people don't know how to handle it or to work with it. And... I wanted to hear from Jasper directly and have him share his thoughts on the experience of all not being business as usual with his writing, as it was for several years recently, and how he came out the other side. And in addition, for anyone who has ever wanted to write something wild and wonderful and maybe outside the traditional genre, the concept of the narrative dare, I think, will really speak to you. So I'm very delighted to introduce Jasper Ford. Hi, Jasper. Thank you so much for being on the show. No problem, no problem at all. So we have the U.S. release of Early Riser coming this month in, um, yeah. from the U.S. publishers, but it was out last year in the U.K. and mm. has been getting quite a reception because you've written several series, but also several standalone books, one of which is about to become 
a series, given that people have been asking for the sequel to Shades of Grey for ages. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, they have, yeah. <laughs> They've yeah. talked you into a series, but you've managed to get another standalone book out. And I'm wondering what the experience is like, how it's different when you have a standalone book idea versus when you're building a relationship with characters and a world over time. Because your worlds are not halfway kinds of worlds. They are full on. Mm, yeah. Um, I think... It's not one, really. I mean, part of it is, um, I suppose, um, you know, economical, and part of it is, uh, from a cre- creative point of view, um, it's much, much easier to write series books once you've done the first two or three, uh, because everything's there. It's the world is is created, and all the logic uh, has already been established, and and everything totally works. Um, and then I can just you know, write a, write a sequel and, you know, I can write, I think probably write first in next books until the cows come home. And certainly I think there's a, there's definitely a third, um, nursery crime book there. Mm. Um, but, um, but when I'm doing that and they, you know, and they do, they do all right. And, you know, and they're sort of selling and everything, but you do that and then you go, mm, I've got this other idea and I, I really want to work on that. So part of me always wants to write standalone books because I can experiment with new worlds, new exciting possibilities. Cause I like the idea of just sort of taking one thing, what I call my narrative dare, taking this one idea and then, seeing how the world would look with just this one thing changed and and it's that logical progression of the idea and the elegance of the sort of the sort of technical way in fact in which the world all fits together in a sort of interesting creative way that i really enjoy i mean i i, I enjoy a great deal so i kind of have to sort of toss up really you know what, what i'm going to do stand alone or, and i suppose do a bit of each really um but it's um it's 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 more exciting doing standalones i must say Yes. And the idea of the narrative dare is incredible. And I'm wondering Mm. if you could share with everyone a little bit more about what that means, because it's an amazing concept. Uh, Well, the concept is, I mean, the interesting thing about writing or being, you know, a sort of, you know, in, in any creative endeavor is you kind of do it. And then years later, you you sort of thinking about how you did it. Uh, because and that, that that sounds a bit sort of counterintuitive, but the thing about you know being creative, being imaginative, is it just it it kind of happens in a in a weird kind of way. You sit down and all this stuff happens, and it's only later. And certainly this is I'm speaking for me, obviously. It's only later when people ask me questions when I'm giving talks and you know talking about a book and stuff, and they go you know uh, different variations of the same question. You know where do you get your ideas from? And and then I sort of suddenly, as I'm talking about it, I kind of realize how I write and how I have always written is what I call the narrative dare. Now, what this means is that you set yourself a little conundrum, a little narrative conundrum, and then you have to write your way out of it. Uh, the, base, the basic idea of it is, of course, that there's no idea too stupid or too silly that you can't <laughs> actually make a story out of it. I mean, nothing. Given, given the right you know, set of skills and doing things in the right way, um, there is no story you cannot tell, right? It's, you're only limited by your skill and imagination. Um, and when you, when you have the, the dare, the idea of the dare is you're not allowed to let yourself off the hook. And what that means is that you often have to rummage deeper into the authorial toolbox to make this really dumb idea work so I, I wrote before I was before I was a published when I was trying to be a writer and it took me um, I think it was when did I start 88 
started in 88 and published in 2001. Uh, so what's that, 13, 13 years? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so 13 years, and I wrote six novels and about 30 short stories, right? Um, so when I was writing sh- short stories in those first two or three years, I was setting myself these really ridiculous dares, like, you know, up his tree in his garden, explain, you know, make that into a story, not explain why the, the, the gorilla is there, but actually make it a story that is engaging and funny and has a little twist and is unusual. And I gave myself more and more bizarre dares. And of course, then I had to work trebly hard to try and make them function as stories. Uh, and one of them, um, Humpty Dumpty is murdered and somebody's responsible. That's the narrative dare. That became uh, my first novel, which is The Big Over Easy. And the one after that was explain the uh, porridge temper- temperature differential in the three bears story. <laughs> and, and that became the fourth bear. Um, then it was someone's kidnapped Jane Eyre and all the, all the um, copies of Jane Eyre are blank from page 200 onwards. Uh, explain that. And it just went on and on and on. So, so th- that's kind of how I write. So we come up to the present day, and it's um, and it's uh, right. Shades of uh, not shades of gray. It's um, early riser. Humans have always hibernated. You know, write a thriller set in a world in which humans have always hibernated. That is the dare. That is a narrative dare. And the hundred and twenty thousand words that came out of it is me working through the dare. Amazing. Yeah, because that is not a short story. That is a full. No. Full-length novel, that one. No, no. Well, it, well as, soon as, as soon as you go, okay, well, how does, hibernation, how, how does hibernating function? And then you start talking about it, well, we have to go to sleep for like four months, and you go, okay, well, how does we survive? Okay, well, we're going to have to start bulking up, and you know, all this sort of thing. And then you have this, um, uh, this notion of Fat Thursday where you have to start you know, eating and really piling on the pounds. And, and all this stuff suddenly comes in, and then, then the world suddenly gets more complex. And, and all of a sudden, it's, it, it, there's a kind of richness that evolves um, from, from taking these, this logical progression of, the, of this idea. And everyone's asleep. Okay, someone has to look after them. You know, um, pharmaceuticals must come into it somewhere. You know, if you take morphinox, then you, you don't have to bulk up so much. There's a great possibility of dying in sleep. That is obviously a big, big deal. Mortality is very high. And, and all these sort of questions start coming in. And... And what's odd about that is that you can, I don't start with the plot mm. because I don't know where the plot's going to be because I don't know the rules of the world. But once the rules of the world come into, come into uh, being, then I suddenly know where the plot and the drama is, is going gonna, is gonna to come from. So sometimes it's, it's a lot of, right, how does this world work? And then it's a question of, of where, does, where, where is this story? You know, where, where does the story come from? So how do you balance those two processes? Because in, in reading most of your books, I just imagine you making yourself laugh with some of these details because, yeah. you know, I think about, you know, the Rubenesque curves of the, of the about to sleep and just all of these details. And I could imagine someone getting into a narrative dare, but never getting out of it and starting writing because it's just so fun mm. to ponder. So how do you balance this sort of how long it takes to really get the world fully functional and then actually get to writing and deciding where the story is. Um, with uh, Early Riser is a kind of, is, was, was unusual in that I got stuck, right? I don't, I don't usually get stuck. I'm, I'm usually okay. Um, with Shades of Grey, uh, which is another very, very odd world, 
um, the, the narrative there, if anyone's interested, um, is, um, is uh, create a, uh, a world order, a social order um, based entirely on visual color. Right, that was that was it. It was, it was one of those really dairy dares, you know. Um, and I didn't stop with just having a hierarchy based on the colours that you can see. I just went on and on and on. Just added colour, a colour-based economy, and uh, medicine is based on on colour. You know, just it just carried on, and it was great fun. Um, it was with 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 shades of grey. It was right. Start writing. Start writing, um, and and see where you you start going, and then all the rules that come in start to play. But the rules have to be, the rules of the world, um, as, as the, your listeners will know, the rules have to be consistent and the rules have to be kind of logical in a sort of bizarrely illogical way. Although the, the rules are unusual and it's strange, they have to kind of be plausible. And I think that's, you know, the, the secret of perhaps of fantasy is, is you're turning something through 10 degrees. This was something that Terry Pratchett used to say. So the thing about fantasy is you, you turn something through 10 degrees and all of a sudden you can see a little bit more that you never saw before. And, mm. and I really like that. Uh, but there's also the thing about um, fantasy is you're trying to make the fantastic mundane or plausible because to the people in the fantasy world, it's not unusual at all. You know, to, to Charlie Worthing or Eddie Russett, these worlds are not unusual. The things that happen to them are a little bit annoying, um, but they're not implausible to them. And I think to be able to put ourselves in the in the driver's seat, you know, with with our with our protagonist, um, you have to have a plausibility um, within a strange, fantastic, bizarre world. And the kind of and I, and that's that's a difficult one to juggle sometimes. But all the things in it are sort of plausible in a way. Um, and I think that's also about suspending disbelief um, and getting the reader to um, to join you on the sort of merry little quest. One of the things that you've done really well with this, and I think you have mentioned this in the past, is to use anchors of mm. things that are familiar to us in this world, like mm. Shakespeare is one in particular that came yeah. up. And, and to look at, you know, one of the things I love uh, was the concept of how Macbeth unfolds in a world mm. where everyone has always hibernated. So I yeah. loved the way that you were able to make, you know, to show just how far reaching this concept of hibernation is and the fact that mm. it changes culture, not such that Shakespeare didn't exist, but just that he mm. wrote the stories differently. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 it, it is important because it does anchor, you know, as you, as you, as you rightly point out. And the thing, uh, I think the thing about Shakespeare is like, a, it's, it's what I call a standard candle. You know, that <laughs> Shakespeare is kind of, no matter how the world ends up, there will always have been Shakespeare. You know, there's, there's something that remains the same. And I kind of like that idea. But it makes, it makes the world kind of, it makes the world recognizable, which is very important, you know, especially when you're writing with perhaps a little bit of satire. It makes the world um, recognizable. Um, it makes the world kind of weirdly plausible, I think. But it also says a great deal about the world. Um, and I use Shakespeare as a standard candle in the Thursday Next series as well in a very similar way. Uh, because we very early on, we meet uh, um, Landon and Thursday go to a Richard III um, audience participation play. And, and that was kind of really explaining how Thursday's world worked through the standard candle of Shakespeare, that, that Shakespeare is so widespread, so popular, that uh, they, they would do audience participation, just like Rocky Horror Show. Um, and in the same way, I, I do it in, uh, in, in Early Riser, 
to give you an idea of the sort of world that they have, that when I say that the narrative there is write a thriller in which humans have always hibernated, the important word in that is always, because everything is fundamentally different in, in, a, in a little, little way. Um, so, so, yeah, stand, standard candles is a great way of looking at it. I love it. <laughs> so, and you talked a little bit, you mentioned this here, and I'm wondering if we could go a little further into this, mm. but you've written a tremendous number of books. This is mm. the 14th, so you have a lot of experience with it. And yet um, you mentioned that you did get stuck with Early Riser, and I'm wondering if you could say more about what happened with that experience and, and what ultimately was helpful in getting through it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is a very interesting one. And I think, and I think it's, it's something that I'm still trying to work my way through because up until Early Riser, because uh, this, this is a book that, because I didn't have a book out between 14 and 18, so that was, that's four years. And, and up until then, I was doing a book a year, and one year I did two books. So I was clearly, you know, could write and write quite fast. Um, sometimes two years, um, Shades of Grey took me two years, I think, to write, but I had another book coming out, da da da. Anyway, so I thought, well, it's going to take me two years. It didn't. It took like three and a half years to write. And it wasn't me sort of not writing. I was writing every single day. I mean, every single day I could, I could write. It wasn't, I hadn't abandoned it and gone away and, you know, and, you know, sort of walked in, you know, in Bhutan or something, you know, which would probably <laughs> been a good idea, maybe. Um, I, was, I was constantly writing. And, and I'd always made this kind of fun, really, of authors who said, you know, oh, I was completely blocked. You know, I just said, oh, well, you just prefer to be down the pub. You know, you can't say you're blocked if you're a carpenter, can you? You know, you can't, can't be a carpenter come into work and say, oh, I, I, I can't, I have com- carpenter's block. You know, <laughs> I can only, I can't possibly make windows. I can only do, you know, um, roofing today. So no I, I, I kind of yeah. made fun of sort of writers and I thought, you know, that it didn't exist. It was just, you know, writers being a little bit sort of, um, you know, I don't know, a mixture of kind of lazy and a little bit sort of flowery perhaps. Um, but I was, suddenly I could not write. All the stuff I was writing didn't work. It wasn't coming together. I was writing and writing and writing, and I was deleting and deleting and deleting, and the story would not come out, the characters would not work, and the whole thing was just grinding to a halt, and it got worse and worse and worse. And there was one point, um, it eventually ended up as a book, was 170,000 words, and it was, I actually submitted that as a first draft, because I, I didn't want people, to, I didn't want my publishers to think that, you know, I, I just couldn't do anything, that, that I'd done nothing for the past two years. And it was awful. I mean, absolutely, it was terrible, terrible draft. And I got to the point where I actually thought that maybe 13 books was all I could write. I mean, it did actually get to that point. I thought, maybe that's it. Maybe that's, you, you reach this limit that you just can't do anymore and you've done and finished. And that lasted about, well, until the following morning, I think. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Well, that isn't I, too long. It wasn't too long, no. And I think what it was, it was, it was, there was a lot of other stuff going on in my life and, and they, and I think how I managed to do a really good run over like 13 or 14 years is that, that it, all the planets were kind of in alignment, that everything was really sort of working. Um, and there was no issues that I had to deal with, you know, outside of my working life. But when issues start crowding in, then all of a sudden 
everything is slightly out of kilter. And it doesn't take much for things to be out of kilter if you're trying to be creative to not be creative. And in the end, I kind of, I was trying to figure this out to myself. I still haven't 100% figured it out. But how I describe it is you have to be able to try and see the goalposts through the fog. Mm. And I think that's the only way I can really um, sort of explain how, how, why it was so difficult. Every, all of a sudden, the fog started coming in. And, and every now and again, I could see the goalposts, and every now and again, I couldn't. And I kind of vaguely knew they were, but I was you know, running towards them and didn't seem to be able to get any closer. And in the end, I just I wrote my way out of it. I went, no, I can't give up. I've got to carry on. I am sit down. I'll put a timer on my desk because I know I have to do like six hours keyboard time to do. Otherwise, this book is not going to come out. Hours, keyboard hours is the only thing that's going to work here because I couldn't deal with, uh, I, you know, all the stuff that's, you know, going on is, is kind of not stuff that I can get rid of. You know, I can sort of run away and, and live somewhere in a, you know, I don't know, and lock myself in a hotel room for seven months, but, you know, that, that's not going to work. Um, so it was really a question of just buttoning down, getting onto the keyboard, and then try and make any headway. And as soon as I did start make headway, and I had some nice ideas that I felt quite good about, then the fog began to to lift, and I could see the uh, and I could see the goalposts again. And and actually, what got me out of it was um, the writing, mm. because there's nothing more exciting than than knowing that what you're writing is, is actually not bad. There's nothing more depressing. Perhaps, well, I'm sure there's lots more things depressing. Uh, it can be very annoying if your writing isn't working. But when it is working, and all of a sudden I have a good idea. Then, then that feeds on itself, and there's a sort of you know positive sort of feedback cycle, and and things start working, and it was just pushing through the logjam to try and get out of it, and that's eventually how I got out of it. And um, I just actually, I, in between uh, when July and now, I've just written another book, and which I've submitted um, uh, um, two days ago. So I'm I'm back, and I can do it again now, and everything's fine. But it was learning how to deal with the fog. There's nothing changed in my life. I've just learned how to deal with the fog. That's an amazing lesson to learn. I think the other thing that seems really important is that you spent 13 years writing before Mm. publishing a book. So I think that that takes Mm. a tremendous amount of dedication and perseverance to keep believing, okay, this process is worth it. And I'm wondering, were you submitting Mm. all that time or were you just saying, okay, I'm just going to figure this out for a while? Like, what was the breakdown uh, of those 13 years? So I started in 88. I submitted my first um, book, Big Over Easy, in uh, about 92, perhaps, 92, 93. So that was, yeah, four or five years. And then I couldn't get that published uh, and then wrote a sequel to a book I couldn't get published uh, and that couldn't get published either. None of these were even read. I mean, these were, I, I used to send off begging letters in the first chapter, so no one ever asked to see uh, the remainder of the book. Um, and this carried on until 2000 when somebody actually read my book, my then, um, my then editor, Tiff, uh, then agent, sorry, Tiff. She actually wrote, read my book, and that was actually what got me into the publishing industry because someone was actually reading my books. Um, so I was constantly, constantly writing, constantly rewriting, constantly resubmitting, um, and then 
when the book was rejected, I was going, OK, uh, it's, it's not good enough. Mm. Right, and, and I think that's the thing to <laughs> that's the thing to sort of I felt that was in the back of my head was that it wasn't a question of, of them not understanding my genius. It was a question of me not being good enough, that my book was not of merchantable quality. The ideas were sound and the ideas have always been sound. I think, you know, Humpty Dumpty is a police procedural. Yeah, why not? Yeah, absolutely. But Isn't it wasn't it, right? actually wasn't actually done very well. And I had to learn my craft. So, so what I was doing, I was, I was spending, you know, 13 years learning my craft. And, and, and eventually, my writing was good enough to be uh, recognized and published. And, you know, I, and my first book came out in 2001. So it wasn't, uh, you know, people say, oh, what did you do? It must have been awful. I go, well, it wasn't really. I was actually having a lot of fun because I was enjoying myself and I was learning this new craft and, and learning a craft is, is great fun because you get more skilled in it and all of a sudden you're, you're doing things with words that you never did before and, and I find that a very enjoyable and exciting um, uh, process as I still do when, when writing, writing books with the whole narrative dare thing. Do you think some of the trick was that your books kind of defy convention in a certain way or at least categorization? Like The Air Affair, I think of as, as like one of the best books for obsessive book nerds that I can mm. think of because yeah. there's so many little inside jokes for people who are big readers. I, I definitely felt that way reading it. But I also had the feeling as I was reading it that I'd never read anything else quite like it. Mm. So I'm wondering if they were like, we like this, but we don't know where mm. to put it. Was there any of mm. that kind of tension? And now oh. you're just sort of your own genre uh, unto yourself. Yeah, oh, totally, totally. I mean, it was, um, what, what I had was I had a book that my agent liked. Uh, and she said, look, I, I don't know who's going to be interested in this. I have no idea. I like it. I can't really explain why I like it. I just do because it's silly and it's funny and it's um, erudite in places and it's, you know, pithy, and it has a story arc and a romance, and it's just weird. Um, you know, sort of leave it with me, and I'll, I'll do what I can. And, and she, she sort of didn't feel that it was, it was going to be an easy sell. Um, but she got someone to read it at, at Hodder, um, Helen, who was my then editor. And, and Helen thought the same. Uh, but she went, well, how am I going to sell this to Hodder? Because this is a real out there book. It's a real outlier. But I, it's a good read i do enjoy it you know and this is the end of the this is the end of the 90s when when uh, the publishing industry was kind of doing lad lit and chick lit it was it was when those were sort of you know just about you know run out of puff by that time um and and so uh, my then editor just got got me in a got me in a room with everyone at hodder and i had to sort of chat to them and charm them and um just be generally quite sort of silly and they felt well maybe he can help sell it um, and and they they said yeah okay but it was a it was very modest um, sale uh, right at the very beginning uh, I I think that it was a risk for them you know I mean that's this is why publishers are so brilliant because they'll take risks with um, with new authors uh, but it was it was not not an easy not an easy sell at all um, but um, I think people liked it because it was different and unusual um, but I mean as a, as an aside on that one. It's one of the other things, of course, uh, to, to, your, to your listeners. It's, it's do your own stuff. 
and that is really important because if I'd, the only piece of advice I got when I was when I was writing, um, I, I met very few people um, in the writery world, in the publishing world, or anything. And I met someone who was an agent uh, for some reason. I, I don't know, bumped into them somewhere, and, and she'd seen a chapter of I don't know the fourth bear or something, and and she was kind of dismissive of it and um, and said, well, you know, the only people who can sell comedy, you know, you know, have a series on TV and all this kind of nonsense. And then and then she said, uh, well, if you want to, you know, get published, you know, look at the bestseller list and, and write something you know, along those lines. And it was kind of the worst advice you can possibly imagine. If you're a writer, you're a creative person, uh, you shouldn't be, um, you shouldn't be sort of, um, you, should be, you should be working not with the market, but your own market and pushing the boundaries and saying to yourself, no, I want to do something different. I want to do something different and a bit exciting and a bit unusual. And to be bold and not worry about someone saying, oh, well, it's, it's very strange. Or using that word interesting. Well, it's very interesting. Jack. You know, the that's, worst. A, that's a real, that's a, the worst thing anyone can ever say. Is, you know, they basically don't understand it. Um, but I think it's, if you think something can work, then just stay with it. Uh, and if, any of, if anything that I've done, you know, is, you know proves that, is that you can get some very odd stuff published and liked and bought, um, but only if you stick to your guns. Um, and and I, I, I never surrendered to, to writing anything than what I write. What I write is, is Jasper Ford writing. I don't write other people's books. I write absolutely my own books. And if no one wanted to read them, I'd probably still be writing them now because it's great fun and it amuses me. Um, but it's no stick to your guns, you know, dance the new steps at the Pan Pacific, you know, just have, have fun with <laughs> Great it. Great reference. Yeah. And don't worry about don't worry about people going, oh, well, I'm not sure, you know, you couldn't you do some sort of Scandinoir or something like that? You know, oh, Lord. Or, you know, be the British John Grisham or, or something like that. No, have a vision um, and make your own market. Yes. Don't, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, don't write to market. And the other point is, of course, if you try and write to market, um, you can spend two years working on a book and then it gets rejected. And it's not even your book because you've been writing someone else's book because you're trying to write to market. But if it's not, if you spend two years writing a book that is absolutely how you see the world, because what we're doing essentially is is exporting our, our worldview. That's what I'm doing. I'm exporting my worldview. This is how I see the world. You know, this is what I love about, you know, humans and, and the world and everything, the, the, rich, the richness of it, the bizarreness of it. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're spending two years and you've written a book that is absolutely you, then at the end of it, even if it's not published, and I say it, it, it almost certainly will be if it's obviously good enough quality, um, then you've still got a book that, that is yours, you know. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's really important. I think so too. I mean, I think in mm. some ways, in, in speaking about getting blocked, I mean, it seems even more likely that you would get stuck writing something, that you're writing a sort of almost like a glorified business proposal. Like, I'm going to mm. sell this as if, you know, writing books is the best way in the world to make money. Um, mm. That's sort of a, a separate topic to have. Yeah. But I think... That given that, you know, the point is to enjoy the writing as well as the reading. I mean, you spend probably 4,000% more time writing a book than someone spends reading it. It's sort of oh, an unfair yeah. piece of math. 
Yeah, it is, yeah. So you deserve to enjoy the writing just as much as someone gets to enjoy reading it. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, and I was, I was very gratified, this, this book that I've just written at the moment, I was very gratified that that all did slot into place um, and everything seemed to work um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, so I, I feel, you know, as I, as I, much more invigorated um, as I go into writing. I think the next one I'm doing is um, uh, the Force in the Dragon Slayer series. Fun. So I've got, I've got to finish a series. You see, I've never finished a series before, and I really want to do it. See, I want to know what it's like. Absolutely. You know, I've no idea. You know. um, so, so I can feel kind of invigorated moving into that, and it's only, only just February, so I've got lots of time to do it. Um, so. Yeah, no, it's, it, it does feel good. Having a good idea when you're writing is 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 really it's the ultimate high, to be honest. Well, for me, it is anyway. Mm. So, what are you? How are you kind of cultivating all of these ideas? Because you've got the narrative dare, and then mm. so you've got a narrative dare that comes up, and and I'm assuming it just sort of pops up out of nowhere. Like, hmm, I wonder about that. What sorts of things are you reading and looking at? Because as we mentioned, there was a bit of, of scientific data about seals and how they function that played into your writing mm, of Early Riser. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, what sorts of, where are you looking for all of this information? Are you watching crazy nature shows? I'm just wondering where all of these details come from. Well, I mean, in the old days, it used to, I used to go down the library or just go into bookshops and start, you know, pulling things out. I find now the internet, of course, is a fantastic resource and Wikipedia is an amazing resource. Although it's, there, there's some, sometimes I, I want to know more, and then I have to go and find a book, and then pour through the book and, and get some more details out of it. But what I'm kind of looking for is 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 jumping off points, little nuggets um, that can that can that can like sprout into big big sort of great big sort of shrubs of creativity. Um, and so the the starting off point for the hibernation uh, idea was reading up about about. Um, animals that hibernate and once you get into the kind of nitty-gritty and i had to go i had to go somewhere else to read about some bears uh hibernating and that was that was very interesting um because um obviously it's very difficult to um to study hibernating bears you know for obvious reasons you know very difficult (laughs) it's a bit risky Um, yeah very risky uh because bears bears in captivity uh don't hibernate apparently um, and so you're going to, you know, it's a little bit risky because uh, they're pretty hungry, uh, you know, hibernating bears. Um, and then somebody, somebody had this theory that bears, um, they, they, will, they will be asleep or, or in deep topor. So there's this, this difference between being in, in deep sleep and sort of topor. Um, and they would come out of a deep sleep and they would sort of scratch themselves and grumble. And then they'd be in a sort of lighter sleep. And then they'd go back to this really, really deep sleep again. And somebody theorized that, they were waking up to dream. Hmm. And I went, oh, I like that. I must be able to use that. I like that concept. He, had to, they had, he couldn't stay in the deep sleep, had to go into the light sleep to dream. And, the, and the, the function of dreams. And then I'm going, okay, we're sleeping dreams. We must be able to move dreams into this. And then I read um, uh, something else about... Um, uh, about um, hibernation. Uh, what was what else was I reading? There was something which which was another big uh, ju- jumping off point. Uh, I think it was about bulking up, um, and all kinds of all these sort of funny little things start coming together about what how people um, how people how people would hibernate. 
and then then all then this sort of ideas kind of spread and darken and and then you add on what what you know about humans and and how they would function how how socially how would we function whilst um whilst we were hibernating um and then then you get into the the sort of technical aspect about well how would we how would we keep ourselves warm during the winter because this is a you know it's obviously very cold um we're i were looking at a, a world that's getting colder rather than getting warmer then you can have an interesting little sort of joke about everyone's worried about global cooling you mm. know uh and i think i mentioned that um uh, Wales was set alight, so the coal fields in Wales have been set alight to actually add carbon dioxide to the um, to the to the climate uh, to the to the atmosphere to try and kick off a you know in quotes greenhouse effect. Um, and all the nice. all the scientists agree that that'd be a really good idea, but they're not 100 percent sure about it. So there's all sort of little jokes like that you can you can you can make. But it's you start with these little ideas, and it's uh, I mentioned before the logical progression of idea. Uh, and that works really well. So you just start off with these little nuggets, bit of research, and then all of a sudden you go, ah, oh, okay, well, let's look at this, let's look at that, let's look at the other. And then I remembered that um, uh, one of the biggest traumatic things of my childhood was watching children's television. And we, we have this um, program, Blue Peter, uh, children's television. They, they, have, they have pets, the Blue Peter pets, and it's, it's a sort of studio show for kids. Um, and, and they have the, uh, a, a tortoise that they used to hibernate, and, of course, it got eaten. Oh. by rats uh, and that was a very traumatic thing to hear when the you know very very seriously faced um you know um presenters on blue peter had to announce that um they they think that their um their uh the pet tortoise um, might have been eaten by rats and i go i can so use that you know oh my no, lord no why would they of, even announce it i i don't know maybe the i don't know where they did maybe they didn't maybe i just made it up and it's in my head i'm not sure but I kind of... I wouldn't be surprised if they did. They do horrible things on children's programming do, and you think, what do. were you thinking? So this, so this idea that, that hibernation is, a, is something to be feared, you know, that, you, that when you say goodnight, you don't say goodnight to people, you say goodbye to people when you go to hibernate. And this idea of mortality that you can't, you might not make it until the spring. And that being so, then the people who bring you up may not necessarily be your biological parents that there might be an, a notion of socialised childcare. How would that function? And where would that kick into the story? And then all of a sudden, these elements start coming together and they start sort of kicking off one another. And that's where the sort of richness of the world starts to, starts to exist. But all the ideas, and this is again is, a, is, is one that um, I'm sure your readers will, will know, is that, is that often they don't work. They actually stop the story. Um, mm. So you can have plot devices and you can have this, this logical world and all of a sudden it stops you from doing things that you want your characters to do. So then you have to modify the world slightly and you can have ideas that you can't use because it, it, it will stop the plot from um, progressing. So there's a very fine line sometimes between you know juggling with all these strands of how the world works with how you want the plot to go through and then taking tropes and turning them on their heads and, and perhaps surprising people and wrong-footing wrong them, and then just sort of being playful as well and doing silly jokes. Um, <laughs> there's a real groaner of a joke that, um, that it takes me about 96 pages to, um, to finesse, but it's a real, <laughs> a real goodie. I'm really hoping that I got people groaning when, when the, the payback for that joke come around. Um, 
so it's and all these things just come into the mix um and it's difficult to know quite quite how to you know make all the bits fit together but it's it's just it, it becomes sort of intuitive i guess after a while so how do you keep track of all of these details? Are you sort of holding the rules in your head? Do you write it down? Do you have a weird wall that looks like, you know, crime shows where they're, you know, people are trying to track yeah. serial killers? Like, how do you keep track of all of this detail? Uh, for the most part, I keep it in my head. Uh, because when, when I'm writing, it all has to come out. I can't stop when I'm writing. The, the thing about writing, it has to be intuitive. It has to come out without touching the sides. I think when you're training yourself to be a writer, you're training yourself to do something naturally, right? In the same way that if you're a gymnast, right, you're training yourself to actually not be thinking as you're doing a, a, a treble forward somersault. You're, you're sort of training yourself to almost do it without thinking. It has to come out without touching the sides. And, and when you're writing, you have to do that as well. Um, the reason I can put all this you know, vast sort of ridiculousness of um, facts and sort of idiosyncrasies in the books is a lot of it is in my head. Um, I'm a good sponge of information, so I will easily be able to move from one idea to another in a logical, you know, logical progression. Um, so when I'm writing, for the most part, it's pretty much in my head. Um, uh, a typical writing day for me will be I will go over the last, uh, maybe the last one or two chapters that I did the day before, and then when I get up to where I'm meant to be writing, I'll just carry on. Um, if I if I leave my writing for any longer than you know the weekend, and sometimes I have to do a little bit during the weekends as well, um, then it all starts to drop out. Mm. And quite often I get to this point where I've gone, you know, I've, I've, maybe I've had to do a school visit and the week has not been tremendously productive writing-wise, and then Monday I will go back to the beginning. I've got to go back to the beginning. And I will all the way back to the beginning, no matter where I am in the book, and then I'll start reading it through again. And it's almost like I'm booting up my, you know, like you boot up a computer every morning. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you have to boot yourself up. And then if you switch off the computer, if you go to bed or you leave, the, leave yourself for four days, then you kind of unboot yourself. And you need to reboot up all the, the facts and, and everything going on and make sure you've got everything in the right order as well, of course, because when you're editing, you're often moving chapters around or sections around here and there. And you can you might forget exactly, you know, where the arc is actually going. So I just go back to the beginning and quite often I'll do that and I'll I'll just go back to the beginning, read all the way through, um, change things here and there, have another idea. And I go, oh, hang on. No, this would work if I was to move this here and this and add something here. Um, then that would work. And I'm rewriting, rewriting, and then I get back to where I'm meant to be, you know, at the, um, the narrative horizon, as I call it. Mm. I get back to my narrative horizon, and I go carry on writing. And I do, like, a couple of chapters, go back the following day, then through, and then three or four weeks after that, or a month or two months, I'll go back to the beginning. And I'll go right back to the beginning, and I'll start all over again. Wow. So then, so then you spend, you know, most of the day reading and then getting ideas and then you can go forward. Yeah, reading. And sometimes I, I would often these days, um, I'll make notes myself when I, if I'm in a, if I'm in a leaving, I, I do leaving notes. And um, sometimes um, uh, Mary, my, my, uh, my wife, will, will sort of say, you know, OK, we've got to, got to go. We're doing something this evening. And then, you know, if I have to start getting ready at six or five or something, I'll go, right, OK, it's been a good day. I'm going to leave myself half an hour so I can actually make notes where, I'm, where I am actually at so I don't lose that because I might be picking it up only in three days' time. 
So quite often I'll do little notes to myself actually inside the text or make notes to myself on a little pad um, that I actually, I actually need to do or little, little ideas that I have that maybe I won't use. So I'm often making little notes down here and there, but for the most part, it's kind of in my head, really. That's amazing. Hmm. I think that's great. No, the leaving notes is crucial because, you know, you can get to the point. I think this is the kiss of death, at least for me, is mm. being wherever I may be out somewhere walking around in the shower insert location that's inconvenient to write something down, thinking, yeah. oh, yeah, of course I'm going to remember this. I will remember this yeah. perfectly. Yeah. This is a great idea. No, I never remember it later. Never. Always yeah. has to be written down. No, it, it, you do, unfortunately. Um, and, I, yeah, I mean, I get, I get good ideas in the shower. You know, I do like, do like sort, of, sort of sit there and sort of soak, and then I, and I, my mind will start to drift. But being on the motorway as well is a good one. Drive, I like driving. You know, going on, um, going on road trips is really good because I, I really get to do some really good thinking. Um, and often, yeah, I'll have a really good idea, and then I'll just make a note and a little chalkboard to put it down um, just to remind myself. Brilliant. So this has been extremely helpful. And yeah. if you have any thoughts, let's say there's someone listening right now who's feeling really stuck. Mm. Would you give them any thoughts about one small thing they could do that might help move them a bit further forward? Um, well, it's, it, it, depends, uh, it depends how they're stuck, really. Mm. Um, if, it's a, um, if it's one of those sort of shoe leather chapters where you, you know, you've, you've got two exciting things. Obviously, there's, there's going to be various little exciting things that are going to happen in your book, little sort of set pieces, you know, the sort of the car chase, and I use that in quotes, you know, the exciting bit, and then there's a slightly, you know, you know the, the thoughtful bit, and then there's another perhaps little set piece. Now, if you're, if you're wondering how, because, of course, you can't have a set piece and then another set piece straight away, you've got to have something in between. So you've got these shoe leather chapters uh, where something else happens. And, of course, the ideal way, of course, is to bring in a subplot that you've been, you know, you've been nurturing, you know, back, back somewhere in the book. Because a lot of, you know, a, a, I think a good book has good pace. Um, mm. If something happens and it's exciting and then all of a sudden something else happened, there might, be, there might be a little interlude, a little sort of comedy interlude or some other subplot going on. Um, so if you're in a position where you, you don't know how to join parts of the book up, um, or you don't know quite where it's going. Uh, no, that's a different problem. Um, if you know, if you pretty much know where the book's going, then it's it's kind of keyboard hours. You've just got to start. You just got to write. Um, it's like look at it. Look at it as a look at it as a sculptor. Right, a sculptor has to have something. You know, the clay has to be there, and then you start working with the clay. It has to be there. The words have to be there before you can start mucking them around and, and trying to get the story out, out the words. Um, so often if I'm stuck or I don't know quite what's happening, I will then start writing uh, something. And whilst I'm writing, then I'll have another little idea and I go, ah, this is where it can go. And I know I can use this earlier because I referenced this and da, 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 da. And then it all starts dropping into place. If you're stuck because you don't know where your story's going, uh, if you don't know really where it's going and you're worried that it's not making any sense. Um, I often say to people, um, and this is, this is quite a good thing to say to oneself, I suppose, when you're writing a book, is what is the book about? I don't mean the plot. Right. So mm -hmm. this is what I say to people when I'm, you know, I've, I'm doing a one-on-one -on -one and I've been given a thousand words um, to read and, and I'm critiquing those thousand words. And you can tell a lot from the first thousand words of a novel, a hell of a lot. And one of the first questions I say is exactly that. 
what is the book about? I don't mean the plot. Don't, don't tell me the plot. I'm not interested. I want to know what this book is about thematically. Right. What, what is it about? And, and they, hopefully they will have a very good answer and they'll go, it's someone trying to make sense of a world that they don't fully understand and trying to find themselves. So they've been lost and a bit rudderless and now they're trying to find themselves. And they go, great. You know, okay, that's really, really going to work. Um, and I think that's, that's an important thing to ask oneself if, you're, if your book is not working and you're not feeling happy with it, is kind of ask yourself if there's an overarching theme to it that you can put your finger on. Um, and sometimes it's actually very difficult, and it might actually be there and you just haven't noticed it. So it's probably worth thinking about that if you feel yourself you know, having a difficult time and you can put in the keyboard hours, but it's still not working. And I would say, try and figure out what the book is about and what you're trying to say and what you feel about it. And that might take, take some soul searching because often we don't know what we're putting into books until long afterwards. But that might help. I think it will. I think that's mm. a great way to look at it. Mm. Thank you so much. I know this is going to help so many people who may feel stuck and it's been really wonderful talking to you. Oh, well, no, my, my pleasure. No, it's, always, it's, it's like when it's asking writers to talk about their books is like asking parents to talk about their children, isn't it? Or if you don't have children, to talk about your dog. You know, so it's, you know, we do like, um, we do like talking. I can talk about my dog, my children and writing. It's great. Brilliant. That would be mm. a good show all of its own. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.